You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet laureate and author of The Summer Day, asks a question that stirs the imagination and makes those tiny hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I love thinking of my life as both wild and precious, And the idea that it is mine to spend as I choose is equal parts freeing and intimidating. If you pose Ms. Oliver's questions to a thousand different people, you will get a thousand different answers, maybe more. How will you choose to spend your time? What will you prioritize? Where will you live? Who will you love? In many respects, our morning texts ask us similar questions. Unlike the poem, however, our texts provide a framework from which to answer. Psalm 111 and 1 Corinthians 8 both deal with knowledge. One creates a path into, and the other serves as a caveat. Okay, I'm going to teach you something that I used to do as a youth pastor, and it is my absolute favorite. I've done it as a camp speaker. I've done it with our youth kids here. Um, I really love telling stories. Um, I think it's super fun. Um, I get to just like lose myself in the memory, but I only like it if you guys like it. And I know you like it if you participate. So here's how this goes. Ready? So I'm going to say story time, and then you all get to yell story time. Okay? And then all of a sudden, we're all in second grade together, and we're sitting on our carpet squares, and we're waiting to hear a good story. So we're going to practice. Ready? Story time. Story 
Oh, okay, so I was going to go for a second one, but that was actually really good. All right, story time. Here we go. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, I was in seminary, and I was in the midst of a very rough deconstruction. I was working at a church that was incredibly unhealthy, and I was walking around wildly unhealed, which is like, I don't know if you know that, like a bad combination, right? Uh, My tolerance for toxicity was very high, both in my context and in myself, And I was trying to reconcile the fact that the trajectory of my entire life was leading into vocational ministry. My education, my career experience, everything was centered around working at a church. And I was so hurt and so disillusioned that brunch seemed like a much wiser use of my time on a Sunday morning. I loved the broader church. I believed that it was capable of good Uh, But I also had a rather extended moment where I did not believe that God was either willing or able to form the body of Christ into the likeness of Christ. How could the thing that I love with my whole heart and have dedicated my life to be such a destructive force in the world in so many ways? So throughout this time, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I was listening to all all the podcasts, desperately finding a way to restore my faith in a meaningful and at least less damaging way. I listened to the cynical tirades of people who thought that the universal church was irredeemable. I listened to the hopeful agnostics who weren't ready to re-engage, but if they ever did, they would probably want to do so with a more gentle and restorative version perhaps a truer version of Jesus than what they were handed. I tried to ignore those obnoxious Facebook posts that we all see, right? The, if you lose faith because of someone in your church, your faith was never in Christ, but in man. And when I tell you that I was lost in my own head, that is an understatement. Because anytime I was in my car, anytime I was in conversation with someone, every attempt at prayer, I was desperately looking for somewhere to land. And I was so craving that stability that surety had afforded me that I did so with a blind eye to literally anything else in my life. I was so inward that I lost sight of the collateral damage. So my spouse, Jeremy, and I were raised very differently. I don't know if you know this, we're um, very different people. (laughs) He grew up in a conservative evangelical family, and I grew up in a house full of atheists. My dad traveled extensively for work. Um, My mom and I would wake up early and change pipes on our seven-acre pasture. When people would ask me to describe my mom, I would say, uh, she builds fence. And she taught me how. She's my dad mom. So here I am in this point in my life where I am working in a master's level Old Testament interpretation course. And I'm learning things that are finally putting pieces together. I'm learning about other cultures and their flood myths. I'm learning about connections between Babylonian and Mesopotamian and Jewish creation stories. I am a loving every second 
It gave me hope that perhaps theology isn't actually hook, line, and sinker, and I am brain dumping on my poor, unsuspecting spouse who didn't complete his undergrad in theology and was not in seminary and was not in the thick of a deconstruction. It was wild, you guys. Babe, listen to this. Babe, listen to what I just read. Babe, isn't it wild that basically every culture borrowed from each other? Babe, isn't it cool that ancient Jews don't believe in truth the way we think about truth? Blah, 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 blah. Babe, 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 babe. Meanwhile, I am missing every signal that he was giving me that I was overwhelming him. I missed the questions that were under the questions uh, that should have been a flashing light. This is like a danger Will Robinson moment. And I was like, shh, shh, shh. no, I don't want to hear that part. He's not where you are. Danger, danger. He doesn't feel the same way about the church and his faith as you do. Danger, danger. He's not trying to construct a system of beliefs out of the rubble and broken relationships and unwelcome doubts that you have. Stop, stop, warning, warning, and on, woo, on up loud. And I never meant to, but I undermined Jeremy's understanding of God in ways that were just cruel. And I pulled the rug out from underneath him. And as he was looking up at me from the ground, I had the audacity to ask him, how'd you get down there? So Mary Oliver asks what we plan to do with our one wild and precious life. And Paul asks what we plan to do with the liberty that is granted to us in our one wild and precious life. UBC is a place that is safe to take beliefs apart, to fall apart, to spend time apart. And that safety extends to people who are trying to put their beliefs together. Paul gives the example of food sacrificed to idols for us to consider. So a little history on Corinth. Uh, the city of Corinth was the wealthiest in all of Greece. And like many wealthy cities, there was a huge divide between social and economic classes. The church at Corinth, the Corinthian church, was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, though likely Gentile converts made up the majority. There was just a ton of infighting, much of which has been attributed to the wealth divide that was inherent in this congregation. Early Christianity extended belonging to people on the fringe of society. And so here we have people who are in poverty, in peer relationships with the uber-wealthy for the very first time in their entire lives. It's going to cause a rub. Not only that, but two very different religious groups with very different sets of rules all of a sudden are supposed to worship together in ways that did not harm or offend or alienate. And I would just say very best of luck to you. <laughs> in Greco-Roman religious culture, there were public feasts that were held at the temples along with social and business events. Corinthian Christians who attended had to choose whether or not they would eat the food that was served, knowing that it had been previously sacrificed to the idol in residence, or refuse and risk insulting their host. 
not only that, but these public festivals were one of the only times that meat was distributed to those in poverty. This food was hard for both sides for different reasons. It called to mind the strict holiness codes for the Jews, and it served as a real-time reminder of the old ways for the Gentiles. So if it's a point of contention for everyone, why is Paul writing this in his letter? Well, Paul talks about knowledge. He talks about love, and he talks about food sacrificed to idols. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Because somewhere within the church at Corinth was a third group. Now this group believed that they had grown beyond temptation. They had grown beyond their roots, be them Jewish or Gentile in nature. And this group was of the mind that the rest of the church should rise up to meet them in their enlightened state. Mm, Sounds familiar. This group either genuinely did not struggle with the uh, moral conscience dilemma that their dinner's previous life afforded them, or they wanted people to think that it did not. My guess is just that they had no awareness of the impact of their actions, and they felt hindered by the people around them. They wanted Paul to do what we often want parents to do, Uh, to exhort their siblings in Christ into firmer faith, a.k.a. agree with me, please. And I love Paul's answer so much because literally everywhere else in the New Testament, food sacrificed to idols is like a hard no, like super hard no. There's no explanation. There's no context. There's just like, hey, please don't eat this. But Paul, oh, Paul, For once, Paul is being a little bit loose with his response. Paul is a man of absolutes. It isn't often that he meanders, and yet here we have Paul, for once, not coming down hard on something that elsewhere he absolutely does. Verse 8, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Um, Little Baby side note, this is why context matters, and it's an example of how it functions in in the Bible. Uh, Paul actually tailored his letters to each congregation to whom he wrote, which is why we can't read one thing and say, well, this applies to everybody for all time, for always the end. So Paul continues, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now I will just share briefly that this passage has been used to justify stringent behavior in many contexts. I was serving in a ministry uh, years ago that said, uh, if you're going to drink, drink at home and in secret. (laughs) So that nobody sees you out and about drinking, and then they don't then fall into sin. I'm just going to say the psychology of addiction uh, would disagree with that method. So we have to be careful that this isn't a everything I do is with the mind of everyone else. 
what Paul is saying is, hey, you have influence because of your experience, because of your knowledge of the things of Christ. And instead of expecting people to get on your level, tell me, what is it you plan to do with the liberty granted to you in your one wild and precious life? I had all the freedom in the world during my deconstruction. And that did not release me from showing care and intentionality to my spouse. I had all the freedom to ask questions and to doubt and to disbelieve, to rabbit hole and rabbit trail. And I prioritized myself in a way that was harmful to my very favorite human in the world. So the broader lesson for us is that everyone gets the chance to have their needs met. And they get that chance in this place, in community. That is a promise we make to one another when we engage in a community of faith. And in particular, at UBC, you can take a part and you can be brave in your doubts and your wonderings. You can question and debate and challenge, and you can choose to use your freedom in ways that encourage and build and bring life and light to those around you. You can refuse to lose sight of the people in your life and in this church that would become collateral damage if you are not self-aware. You can explore and you can grow and you can discover and learn and be new and fresh and excited and confident about this new thing that you have discovered. And you can choose to use your freedom in ways that extend space and support to people who just aren't there anymore, to people who maybe want to be there again and don't know how to do it. You can hold gently those in your life and in this church who are in tough spots in their faith, who have lost or returned their, or returned their buy-in, who are trying to sift through what to keep and what to discard, we need multiple perspectives. We need people at different places in their journey. It's rich and it's fun and it's encouraging. And a diversity of voices and experience shape us in a way that no other form will. We get to grow together and be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus when we are willing to recognize a myriad of experiences of harm and hurt and joy and wondering. Our freedom in Christ is a gift. And one of the best ways that I can think of to honor that gift is to use the freedom conscientiously and intentionally to make space for everybody and everybody in between. UBC, may we be a place that holds space for each other, that pays attention to one another and chooses one another in beautiful ways. May we take apart what must be taken apart and remember to build what must be built. May we take seriously the sacredness of our one wild and precious life. Amen. In that vein, we'll take some time together, allow the spirit to come, speak something new, uh, remind us of something old, correct something I may have said incorrectly. And as we practice the gift of silence, may it be a rich reminder 
that we're all in different spaces. And that's what makes this place so cool. <laughs>